0: Hi, I'm Peter Adamson, and you're listening to the History of Philosophy podcast, brought to you with the support of King's College London and the Leverhulme Trust, online at www.historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode will be an interview with Dominic O'Mara, who is Emeritus Professor of Philosophy from the University of Freiburg in Switzerland. Hi, Dominic. Thanks for coming on. Hi, Peter. The topic that we're going to be discussing today is Neoplatonism, and in particular, two topics you've written about in books called Platonopolis and Pythagoras Revived. So we'll start with political philosophy, which was the topic of this book, Platonopolis. And I guess the obvious thing to ask you about that is: Were Neoplatonists even interested in political philosophy? Because there's a kind of cliched idea that this is just something they paid no attention to.
1: Well, the conventional uh, image uh, that you find about uh, uh, you find of Neoplatonist philosophers is that they're not interested in. Uh, In the physical world, they're not interested in their bodies, they're not interested in in social life. They're only interested in getting away from all that stuff and transcending this physical world, transcending uh, ordinary human society and reaching some kind of union with some transcendent uh, divinity, which they call the One and they're so keen on doing this that they they try to get away from any engagement in ordinary human relations or any involvement with ordinary life and this seems to entail uh, according to the conventional view that they take no interest in what it means to live well in ordinary life how to organize one's one's daily existence in the world uh, with other people
0: But I guess that would be a pretty strange phenomenon, right, if these Platonists, who call themselves Platonists, weren't interested in political philosophy. After all, Plato wrote maybe the greatest work ever on political philosophy, which is The Republic. He also wrote other works on political philosophy, for example, a a late work called The Laws, which people don't read much anymore, but it's there. So were they interested in those works, or did they just ignore them?
1: Yes, well, this is absolutely true. You would think that if they really did uh, interest themselves in Plato, and if they thought that Plato was, so to speak, uh, the philosopher, then uh, they would be aware of this dimension of Plato. The reason people have thought that uh, the later Neoplatonists were not interested in this side of Plato was, I think, uh, because there is this idea that they're, they're, they're almost like uh, monks or they're almost like saints. There's some sort of confusion between, um, let's say, Christian ideas about asceticism and getting away from the world, going into the desert, and philosophers of the same period as these Christian ascetics Uh, But in fact, of course, there were all of these texts of Plato, uh, which they were interested in, and which they read. And I think there's also a philosophical um, um, error involved in thinking that making this world less important and taking less interest in this world and thinking that what is more important is some other world, that this necessarily involves no interest in politics. In fact, I think putting less emphasis in daily life in this world is itself, so to speak, a political gesture and involves a political theory. And so you might say that uh, there is also a political philosophy or uh, an attitude to this world which suggests that our present life, our daily life, is not the, the best life, uh, it does not entail logically, so to speak, that uh, you have no political theory.
0: I guess I can see how that would work in ethics, because mm-hmm. if you thought the things of this world were not important, then, mm-hmm. for example, you might put less emphasis on physical pleasure mm-hmm. or getting money, for yeah. instance. Yeah. But how does it work out as a political gesture? Yes.
1: Um, maybe another thing I should say that um, um, political philosophy in antiquity is not like modern political philosophy. And if you look at li- people like Plato and Aristotle, Uh, they consider that the polis or the city or the community is in fact uh, a sort of an ethical community or a community in which you can realize the good in which you you can reach virtue. Uh, So it's quite different from a modern political perspective. So if we're talking about the Neoplatonists, I think we need to put them in the context of ancient political philosophy and the conception of political philosophy that you find in Plato and Aristotle. In other words, we live with others in order to attain virtue and in order to attain happiness. And this is quite different from um, modern conceptions. And uh, the Neoplatonists uh, thought also like this, that uh, a community, living with people, um, is a way of re- reaching virtue and it is a way of reaching happiness in some way. And the purpose of, of political philosophy is to give us the knowledge required to realize this.
0: And so political affairs, getting your political regime in the right order would, in a sense, be the first step, or at least an early step on the way to some kind of fulfilled wisdom and happiness. Is that right?
1: Exactly. The big difference, you might say, is that the Neoplatonists didn't think that uh, human happiness could be fully attained, completely attained, in ordinary daily life, in the ordinary uh, social situation, uh, and that it could only be attained in a higher life. But they also thought that uh, a step towards this higher life was uh, living well, living uh, virtuously, and in a certain sense living quite happily in your ordinary life, in your ordinary material life, in your ordinary social relations. And so they introduced the idea of political happiness. And the idea of political happiness is the idea of, of a happiness which is, so to speak, An image or an anticipation or preparation for a higher happiness, which would be the happiness of this uh, transcendent life, this this life of of, of intellect, in fact.
0: Would they think, if I attained the life of intellect, the true happiness, that the political happiness could just fall away, so that it's a kind of step on a ladder towards Mm -hmm. true happiness, but one that... I could discard once I got up the ladder? Yes.
1: Well, there's. Uh, I like to think of this in two ways. Um, you might say the political happiness and virtues or living well with other people in your material existence is a, a necessary step for reaching a higher kind of happiness, the happiness of pure mind. But that's just uh, one phase, so to speak. The other phase is um, the phase of supposing that you've reached a higher perfection and higher happiness, you're still living in this world. you still have a body, you still have people around you, you still live with them. And in fact, to the extent that you live uh, with other people and you live a material existence, a corporeal existence, you still require, so to speak, political happiness, even if you have theoretical happiness. So in fact, Political happiness leads to theoretical happiness, but if you have theoretical happiness you still need political happiness to the extent that you live in a body with other people all around you.
0: Right, that's really interesting. Maybe we could talk about how that plays out in specific Neoplatonic thinkers. The obvious place to start would be Plotinus, because he's usually reckoned as the founder of Neoplatonism. And I guess that political philosophy is certainly not what leaps to mind when most people think of Plotinus. What is there to say about Plotinus and political philosophy?
1: I I think, um, for reasons maybe we'll we'll be able to go into later on, Uh, Plotinus is probably less interested than his successors in political philosophy. And we hear about him that he wanted to found a city called Platinopolis. And this was to be a city uh, um, outside Rome, uh, and he was to live there according to Plato's laws with probably friends and colleagues. And this project of founding a philosophical city, so to speak, according to Plato's laws, uh, was not uh, realized. Uh, the the Roman emperor wouldn't give him the, 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 the money, <laughs> the land. Some things
0: <laughs> the endowment the throughout history. <laughs> the <they>?
1: endowment, yes. <laughs> but it is an interesting story, and I think we shouldn't neglect the fact that it is to be a city organized according to Plato's laws. We don't know whether that means that it would be a city organized according to Plato's Republic or according to Plato's laws, the book. Mm. Um, We don't know that, but I think it's a mistake to pretend that he didn't have an interest in in founding what would be a good human society, so to speak.
0: And does that have any reflection in the Enneads, his own writings?
1: I think it does. Uh, I think uh, he talks now and then about um, about uh, how we should um, lead our lives he 's mostly interested in you might say your personal life and in your family life and in living with the people who are near you around you and he uses uh, for describing these relationships the relationships within yourself and with the people who are close to you. He uses, in fact, uh, the, the model of Plato's Republic, where um, you need to develop a sort of a balanced life in which your your emotions, your desires are, are rationally uh, conducted, and conducted in such a way that they don't, so to speak, take over uh, the function that is proper to reason. So he does talk about it, but he seems to think of it primarily as a matter of living a balanced life yourself and and living well with others. Mm. Um, He also seems to think, he does mention at one point the idea that uh, if you have reached theoretical wisdom, uh, you you may want to use this theoretical wisdom to translate it, so to speak, for the benefit of the people around you in improving um, uh, uh, social relationships. Um, and there he does, this is a text and treatise says, uh, in Ennead 6 9. There he does use the, the idea of the philosopher who descends into the cave, uh, which you find in Plato's Republic.
0: And speaking of the Republic, I guess we could move along to Proclus, because Proclus wrote a commentary on the Republic, or at least a set of essays yes. on the Republic, and we would expect that that should tell us something about his yes. political philosophy. Yes. What does it tell us?
1: Well, <laughs> um, in fact, you might say, if I can add a few things, uh, the Republic is a little more present in, Pla- in Plotinus than one than, um, might imagine, and there are actually more references to Plato's Republic than are listed in the Standard Editions. Yamlichus um, himself was interested in Plato's Republic and interpreted it and uses it, quotes it quite extensively. And so when Proclus gets to commenting on Plato's Republic this is not something new Um, but at least we have these texts from Proclus and we don't have uh, earlier texts which are lost so at least in Proclus we can see what a later Neoplatonist would do with Plato's Republic now um, why was Proclus interested in Plato's Republic well he was interested in Plato's Republic and in Plato's laws Um, and he read the Politicus also Plato's Statesman and it seems to be in the context of an interest in, in what is called political virtue in Plotinus and in, in Proclus. That is how the virtue of living well, as I've described it, in your terrestrial existence, in your material existence, in your social relationships with others. And to cultivate these political virtues, which are the virtues that Plato defines in the Republic, um, Proclus read Plato's Gorgias and also Plato's Republic and Plato's Laws. These were the, the texts in which you could find information about political virtue and how to develop it.
0: And you think that wasn't unusual, that they would have been studying the Republic and the laws in his class? Or was it not in a classroom context? Was it something he was just doing on his own for his own interest? Or do we not know that?
1: I think we can say that Proclus was a brilliant student, and that he read, as a brilliant student, a very industrious student, a serious student, he read as much as he could of Plato, and so he didn't content himself with a sort of a, a minimalistic course in readings in Plato, he read everything, and he read the Republic, and he read the laws. And it's probable that he's better students, when he became a teacher, also were not content with sort of the minimum course. And they also read uh, these texts. And I imagine he wrote uh, on Plato's Republic um, for these better students.
0: And what sort of themes most interest him about the political philosophy of the Republic? What does he do with the text?
1: Well, he's interested in a a number of questions. There are are a number of essays. And uh, some of these questions are questions which are still uh, very much discussed uh, in Plato studies. For example, he discusses a question at the beginning of his set of essays on the Republic as to what the Republic is about. Uh, Today, uh, there's some discussion as to whether it's really about politics or is it not more about ethics or about psychology, perhaps. And uh, Proclus discusses this question and I think uh, has a very good way of balancing out the political and the ethical uh, dimensions of Plato's Republic. There's another essay which I find very interesting in which he um, talks about Plato's idea of the uh, philosopher Queens. And uh, he has a, an interesting theory about this. Um, he takes it quite seriously. Um, and if you think that Neoplatonists are not interested in politics you will have a little problem with explaining why Proclus talks about philosopher queens.
0: And <laughs> he's in favor of the idea, presumably, that yes. women could be philosophers and be rulers.
1: Absolutely. But he has a he is a refined theory, because uh, uh, people notice that in Plato's laws, the women uh, don't get the same, so to speak, uh, equality that they don't have the same power in Plato's laws as they have in Plato's Republic. Women don't become rulers in Plato's laws. And so there's a problem in Plato. What you do with the fact that in the Republic, women can be rulers as well as men, but in Plato's laws, they can't. They have a somewhat uh, lower place. And Proclus deals with this question, and his solution is to say that um, Plato's laws takes account more of human nature and so Plato's laws introduces things like um, a certain amount of inequality between the citizens, introduces the idea of private property, introduces also a certain subordination of women. This seems to have to do, you might say, with the realities of human nature. Whereas in the Republic, Plato excludes private property, excludes family life, uh, insists on absolute equality at least in as regards the the rulers of society and there women are no different from men at least as far as their qualifications to rule is concerned so Proclus regards the ideal city of plato's republic as an so to speak absolute ideal an absolute ideal of equality justice harmony but he regards Plato's laws as a, so to speak, second-degree ideal.
0: Which makes in, concessions to... Which makes certain concessions, in law,
1: in exactly. Right. And so we make some concessions to the fact that humans tend to want to have some private property. <laughs> and they tend to, have, to want to have families. And then, of course, the concession also, and this is maybe a typically Greek concession, that maybe women, <laughs> um, so to speak, take second place. But this you might say, is Proclus' attempt to make sense of Plato's political philosophy in respect to the difference between an absolute ideal and uh, the given, so to speak, the given of human nature and what might be not a reality we could realize but an ideal for reality we could realize.
0: Speaking of ideals, I wanted to move on to talk a little bit about Pythagoreanism in this later period of Neoplatonism. Let me ask you, therefore, about Pythagoras, who was perceived as a kind of ideal exemplar, both in ethics and, I guess, even as a political figure in Mm -hmm. later Neoplatonism. Uh And I suppose the person to start with here would be Iamblichus, Uh who wrote a long work on Pythagoras. Yes. So could you tell us about that and what Iamblichus did with Pythagoreanism and how he kind of reintegrated that into the history of Platonism?
1: Yes. In a way, continuing on what we've been talking about, Iamblichus interprets Plato's Republic as being a depiction of a Pythagorean community. It's a famous Pythagorean saying that everything is shared between friends, koinata, philon, And so this idea of sharing everything, not having anything, not having any private property for Iamblichus is clearly, so to speak, the characteristic of a Pythagorean community. So he understood the ideal state of the Republic as, in fact, an, a Pythagorean
0: community. That phrase that everything is in common between yeah. friends is actually quoted in the Republic, right?
1: Yes, yes. But it's it's an interesting take on the Republic to think of maybe that Plato might indeed have been thinking of a Pythagorean community in the Republic. At least that's Iamblichus' theory. Iamblichus is... Um, a great fabricator of a history of philosophy, which is in fact itself a philosophical statement. And so he tries to say that in fact Plato is not the source of all knowledge, he's not the philosopher, in fact Plato is himself dependent on Pythagoras and that the real Greek source of philosophy is Pythagoras. This means that anything that's true and good in Plato is in fact a Pythagorean. And Iamblichus, uh, probably in polemics with Plotinus and, and uh, Porphyry, tried to claim, so to speak, that his philosophy, the Pythagorean philosophy, was in fact far older than the Platonism that was represented by Plotinus and, and Porphyry. It was a kind of a a war uh, between them as to the Platonic heritage. Who was the true heir to Plato? Iamblichus claiming that he was the true heir to Plato because in fact Plato was Pythagorean. Um, Iamblichus in his uh, major work on Pythagoreanism um, talks about the mathematical sciences and how they, they lead to knowledge of um, divine first principles. Um, but he seems to be mostly interested in arithmetic in this, in this um big work, of which we only have the first half. Um, uh, Proclus, who was much inspired by Iamblichus, however, gave more attention to geometry than to arithmetic, and he seemed to think that in geometry we have uh, an exemplary uh, mathematical science as regards scientific method, as regards uh, good, rational uh, method in general. And uh, this may be the reason why Proclus, rather than talking about arithmetic, uh, concentrated on geometry and uh, wrote a commentary on Euclid's elements. So you might say it's as a consequence of Iamblichus's interest in Pythagoreanism that you ended up with Proclus writing on Euclid. And this commentary on Euclid is quite fascinating because uh, he tries to develop a sort of um, philosophical method of reasoning on the basis of Euclid's book in order to interpret Euclid's procedures. And so there's quite a lot about uh, how science is constituted, what its first principles are, how you develop arguments, what kind of arguments there are, what are the parts of arguments. And all of this is developed on the basis of an interpretation of Euclid. And... uh, it's an interpretation, you might say, of the procedure of mathematical science, but with the purpose of training the mind for thinking about deeper things or, or more fundamental things about first principles. You practice mathematical science, and in particular geometry, as a way of getting ready, so to speak, to reach uh, first principles in, 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 with the scientific method. However, the fact that Proclus was interested in Euclid is of great significance for the history of mathematics and for science, uh, because when a Latin translation of it was published by a mathematician, Barozzi, in the Renaissance, the Renaissance mathematicians and philosophers were absolutely fascinated in this book. They read Proclus's commentary on Euclid, and many of the methodological issues which they discussed were discussed as a result of of their reading of Proclus' book. And this goes as far as Galileo, who was involved in discussions with other mathematicians of his his period around issues that arose from reading Proclus' book. And of course, uh, when Kepler got to uh, publishing his uh, book on the harmony of the world, he uh, used big passages from Proclus' commentary on Euclid to talk about his astronomy. So, in fact, um, what Iamblichus has started, so to speak, uh, was to have considerable consequences for the history of philosophy, the history of mathematics, including Renaissance period.
0: I suppose that the Pythagoreanism, both in Iamblichus and Proclus, who I think follows Iamblichus mm-hmm. in this yes. regard, shows up in maybe two ways. One is philosophical methodology, yeah. and the other is their metaphysics, which is highly mathematical. So to start with the first of those issues, what signs do we see in Iamblichus or Proclus or both that they are thinking of philosophy as a mathematical or quasi-mathematical enterprise? Can I go back a little bit? Yeah, <laughs> i <I'm>
1: sorry. <laughs> um, I just, uh, w- one thing I'd, I'd like to add is that Jamblichus wrote this big work, which is kind of his work in which he tries to prove this propaganda of his, that in fact true Platonism is Pythagoreanism. And in it there's a, a Pythagorean life. It's the first volume of this, this big work on Pythagoreanism. Mm-hmm. And in there you find uh, a sort of picture of Pythagoras, which we still use, a major source for our knowledge about Pythagoras, um, but it's a picture you might say that is also a statement of what philosophy should be, or what a real, what an ideal philosopher would be in Iamblichus' time. And so, if you read it like that, then you find that Pythagoras is involved in politics. He gives political advice. He's a political thinker, and he invents uh, constitutions. And his his uh, his school, of course, is very much politically involved you could read this text again as a, as an illustration of a vision of the philosopher uh, that Iamblichus himself would subscribe to but of course in this life of Pythagoras or pythagorean life that Iamblichus wrote there is not just the facet of Pythagoras as a political philosopher there's also the facet of, of Pythagoras as a mathematical philosopher, and in fact the two the two sides are there together, and they, as they are in Euclidus himself. So in the in the following books of this big synthesis of Pythagoreanism which he wrote, which I think is not a collection of real evidence on ancient Pythagoreanism, but an expression more of his program, so to speak, to make a Pythagorean Platonism. You find that this aspect of pythagoras pythagoras as a philosopher of number is in fact uh, developed very much so the philosophy turns out to be primarily mathematical science and then the science that mathematics leads to the science of transcendent causes uh, metaphysics or, or dialectic as plato calls it
0: And they would even have seen some of the entities that you get up to study in the higher realms of philosophy as either quasi-mathematical or as actually numbers,
1: right? Yes. I think um, this um, taking seriously of the idea of the importance of number and of mathematics in general is important in Jambluchus and in his successes because they actually try to fill out this program we have we have this idea that everything is number or we can understand everything through number but how do you carry this out in detail in scientific investigations and that's actually what Jamblichus tries to do so it's actually very significant and i think even more significant is that he th- seems to think that mathematical science provides us with the formulation of what rigorous scientific thinking is and this means that mathematical concepts of order start to permeate all of the philosophical sciences in Iamblichus. In mathematical order, the order of numbers or the order of geometrical figures, um, uh, provide the structures for understanding metaphysical order, the order of first causes, and also physical order, the order of things in this world.
0: Would that mean, for example, that if you had say, a procession of gods, of Neoplatonic divine entities, yes. that they would be considered to be analogous to numbers, so they're, they would process in a kind of numerical fashion? Is that the sort of thing he has in mind?
1: Exactly. So if you're, if you're a, a later Neoplatonist uh, involved in trying to, to save all of the old Greek gods and save uh, all of these lovely stories about uh, the birth of the gods in, in Homer and Hesiod, um, and it's a kind of a mess... If you want to sort it out, uh, then all you do is you sort of take mathematical structures and you fit them into these structures or mathematical structures, the, the order of numbers and the relationships between numbers or the order of geometrical figures and the relationship between geometrical figures provide you, so to speak, a skeleton on which you can hang all of these bits, so to speak, mm. <laughs> of, of old Greek religion. Um, so the, the mathematization of philosophy in Iamblichus has very important consequences for the turning of Gre- the Greek pantheon in some, into a sort of a philosophically meaningful uh, structure.
0: Right. Well, that actually gives me a perfect transition to the topic of the next episode, which mm-hmm. will in fact be the relationship between pagan Neoplatonic philosophy and the emerging religion of Christianity in late antiquity. So, please join me for that next time. But for now, I'll thank Dominic O'Mara very much. Thank you. And join me again next time on the history of philosophy without any gaps.